History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 501st episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're going to do a location down there in San Diego, California, Hotel Del Coronado. I've been around it many times. Have you? I have never seen it in person. The closest I've gotten to it would be the Grand Floridian here at Walt Disney World because it is based on the same kind of look. Ah, well, it's not like I've walked the grounds. I've always seen it from a distance, but yes. (laughs) So you've never stayed there? No. Have you ever been to Coronado? In the general area, but not, you know, spending an extended amount of time. It was many years ago. Okay. Well, it has a couple of ghosts here. One is very famously known. There was a woman who died there and her spirit still seems to be hanging around. Before we get into sharing that with everybody, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Claudia, Anahi, Ethania. We think this is Lene or Lena. Kenny, Katie with a T-Y, and Margaret. Thank you so much for joining us in the Spooktacular crew. And now this moment, Noddity. With such a large lottery payout recently, it can make one curious about the likelihood of suddenly hitting those winning numbers or coming across buried treasure. Earlier in 2023, a Kentucky man found an unexpected cache of gold coins buried in his cornfield. The fortuitous farmer found over 700 gold coins dating back to the Civil War era. The coins have since been certified as genuine $1, 10 and $20 gold coins minted prior to and during the Civil War. The value of the individual coins vary from $1 coins selling for about $1,000 to Gold Liberty Double Eagles minted in 1863, which can sell for between a few thousand dollars up to nearly $400,000 at auction. Some of the found coins were in such excellent condition that it has been determined that they may have never been in circulation. Many of the coins were minted in 1862 and 1863, during which time Kentucky was the location of intense battles between the Union and Confederate armies, with the state being politically divided. It is hypothesized that the gold coins were buried during this time to hide them from the invading army, and that most likely the owner was killed since the coins were never recovered by their owner, or perhaps they simply forgot where they buried the stash. Although the finder of the treasure has chosen to remain anonymous, the fact that he posted his discovery on the internet may not keep his identity a mystery for long. It is understandable how discovering such a historic and rare find such as these coins can be compared to winning the lottery, but undeniably, it certainly is odd. You're not afraid of a little ghost, are you? And now, This Month in History. In 
month of August on the 2nd in 1909, the first pennies with Lincoln's profile were issued. If it were not for President Theodore Roosevelt, the Lincoln one-cent piece may never have come to fruition. At the turn of the century, the deceased President Abraham Lincoln had already become a highly regarded icon. Although at the time people thought it improper to have a real person's likeness on a circulating coin, Roosevelt had a different opinion. He had viewed sculptor Victor David Brenner's bronze plaque of Lincoln and was so impressed that the sitting president insisted that the artist create a coin of Lincoln's profile for circulating currency. The creation process was difficult for Brenner and the U.S. Mint chief engraver, Charles Barber. The engraver did not favor working with outside artists, and it took a while to come up with a design that satisfied both the artist and the mint. Victor David Brenner wanted to create a beautiful coin, whereas Charles Barber desired a design that would not wear out the coin dies too quickly. Once the final design was agreed upon and production began, the new-to-arrive coin was highly publicized, creating much impatience with the general public. Due to the expected demand, the mint held off release until it had struck more than 25 million pennies to place into circulation. There's no other way to describe the Hotel del Coronado in San Diego other than magnificent. The structure is unique and easily recognizable with its Queen Anne Victorian architecture and white clapboard exterior topped with red turrets. Much has been added to it through the years to modernize it, but the original 1888 hotel still dominates the scene. A beautiful stranger came to stay in 1892 and she was found dead at the hotel. And now that hotel is famously haunted by her spirit. From the hotel, one can see the Old Point Loma Lighthouse, which also is apparently haunted. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Hotel del Coronado. San Diego was experiencing a land boom in the mid-1880s. Elisha Babcock Jr. and Hampton L. Story traveled to Coronado Beach, and they were so moved by the beauty there that despite having no experience in the hotel business, they decided to build a hotel. Hey, if you've never done it, why not give it a try? Why not? I mean, if you did come to a really cool resort area and you envisioned what it could be, I could see you being like, this is going to make us some money. Cha-ching! Their goal was to make it the talk of the Western world. The men formed the Coronado Beach Company and chose the site for the hotel. Then there was the matter of all the logistics connected to developing the hotel properly. There would need to be streets and parks and transportation. The Coronado Ferry Company developed ferry boat service between San Diego and Coronado. The men then set out to build a town by holding a land auction, and they sold 350 lots. Continued sales eventually reached $2.25 million. Coronado was incorporated in 1890. Architect James Reed from New Brunswick, Canada, laid out the basic design for the hotel in 1886. Babcock's instructions to Reed were as follows. It would be built around a court, a garden of tropical trees, shrubs, and flowers. From the south end, the foyer should open up to Glorietta Bay with verandas for rest and promenade. On the ocean corner, there should be a pavilion tower, and northward along the ocean, a colonnade, terraced in grass to the beach. 
The dining wing should project at an angle from the southeast corner of the court and be almost detached to give full value to the view of the ocean, bay, and city. Construction began in March 1887, and a planing mill was built on site to finish the raw lumber. Kilns were installed for making bricks, and a metal shop and ironworks were constructed, so they were doing everything on site. California redwood was used for external siding, and the lobby had Illinois white oak. Much of the labor came from Chinese immigrants, and about 250 men were needed. The pinnacle of the hotel was the crown room, which was the main dining room, and it had an Oregon sugar pine ceiling that was installed without any nails. Oh my goodness. Only pegs and glue were used. The interior court of the hotel had a fountain and exotic fruit trees. There were music and billiard rooms, private parlors, and expansive verandas. The mother of Balboa Park, botanist Kate Sessions, designed the landscape for the hotel. This included a Japanese tea garden, tennis courts, bowling alleys, and an Olympic-sized saltwater pool. The hotel touted itself as a health resort. The Hotel Del Coronado officially opened in February 1888 with 399 rooms. You don't think you could just make that one more room to make it an even 400? <laughs> There's always room for one more. Room for one more. It featured the latest in fire prevention with a freshwater pipeline running from San Diego Bay, two large concrete cisterns in the basement to catch rainwater, and gravity flow sprinklers. The world's first oil furnace was installed in the hotel. The electrical system was also a marvel. It ran electric wires along the gas lines so that if the electricity didn't work, gas could be used. The Dell, as everyone was calling it, was the first hotel to have electricity. And then, right after the hotel opened, the land boom busted and the Coronado Beach Company found itself in need of money, which they borrowed. They then capitalized with $3 million, but eventually ended up selling to John Dietrich Spreckles. The Spreckles family would retain ownership of the hotel through to 1948. The rich and famous all wanted to stay at the hotel, and they did. The Prince of Wales, Edward, visited in April of 1920. There is a legend that he met Wallace here at the hotel, and that that's what kind of started their whole affair and him to abdicate, but they actually met sometime after this. The 1920s were a grand time for the Dell. Charlie Chaplin, Rudolph Valentino, Clark Gable, Mae West, Errol Flynn, Douglas Fairbanks, Betty Davis, Ginger Rogers, Catherine Hepburn, and Joan Crawford all visited during that decade and the 1930s. The cisterns down in the basement were used for hiding alcohol during Prohibition. Brilliant. So much for that <laughs> rainwater. <laughs> Different kind of water. It's fire water. Yeah, fire water. That's it. The SS Monte Carlo shipwrecked a quarter mile south of the hotel. This had been a gambling ship known for its drinks, dice, and dolls. And I don't think they're talking about the haunted kind, Kelly. A naval air station was built on nearby North Island in 1917 and is considered the birthplace of naval aviation. During World War II, hotels were used by the government for housing and hospitals, and the Dell was one of them that housed pilots that were being trained at the naval air station. The government didn't actually have to officially commandeer the hotel as it willingly housed families of officers. It did receive designation as a wartime casualty station and planted a large victory garden on all the spare grounds. And these casualty stations is where they were like a layover point between going from whatever battle you were at to a hospital. And I mean, this is World War II California, so I don't know if they were bringing them from off ships that had fought in the Pacific 
And so they were there until they moved them further into the country? I'm guessing probably so. In 1948, a man named Barney Goodman purchased the hotel from the Spreckles. Under his tenure, the hotel began to fall into disrepair. The once gorgeous Dell needed renovating, and that would come in 1960 when local millionaire John Alessio bought the hotel. He invested $2 million on refurbishment and redecorating, which was supervised by Hollywood set designer Al Goodman. Goodman was born in Chicago in 1910, and he studied at the prestigious Chicago Art Institute. He moved with his wife to Hollywood during the Great Depression, and he was hired as a set artist by Paramount Studios. Goodman spent 20 years working in Hollywood, not only working on movies, but also television shows. He was a pioneer in special effects and set design. The redesign he did of the Hotel Del Coronado's ballroom in 1961 was acclaimed and featured in San Diego Magazine. Alessio didn't hold on to the hotel for long. He sold it in 1963 to M. Larry Lawrence. Who named him? (laughs) His parents are like, I don't know what his first name is. I mean, I'm assuming that they really did make his middle name Larry rather than Lawrence. So it wasn't M. Lawrence Lawrence, but still. Did your parents hate you? (laughs) (laughs) He initially planned to demolish the Dell and redevelop the land. Now, if he'd done that, we would all hate him. Thankfully, he changed his mind and instead invested a whopping $150 million to refurbish and expand the hotel. He doubled its capacity to 700 rooms and added the Grand Hall Convention Center and two seven-story ocean towers. Larry died in 1996 and his family sold the hotel to the Travelers Group and they in turn made a $55 million upgrade to the hotel in 2001. Through all these changes, the original portion of the Dell has kept its Victorian look, which as I said earlier, inspired the design of the Walt Disney World's Grand Floridian Resort. Cottages and villas were added to the property in 2005, which increased occupancy by 205 rooms. And then things got really complicated about the Dell's ownership. Many different transactions and changing of hands occurred with multiple companies holding shares of the hotel. The Blackstone Group LP, which seems to own everything nowadays, bought strategic hotels and resorts in 2015 after it became the full owner of the Dell. The hotel was said to be worth $590 million at the time. A year later, Blackstone tried to sell the property to China in a multi-resort deal worth $6.5 billion. But the government said, wait a minute, the Dell is too close to major Navy bases for the comfort of the government. So Blackstone still owns the hotel today, but it is managed by Hilton Hotels and Resorts. The Hotel Del Coronado was inducted into Historic Hotels of America in 2018. The ghost story connected to the Dell is fairly well known and involves a woman named Kate Morgan, who seemed to have committed suicide at the hotel. There's a lot of mystery to this story, and we don't really know what's true. We're going to share a whole bunch of different angles on it. She started out as Kate Farmer and was born in Iowa in 1864. We are unsure of the month, but by September of the following year, she was motherless. Her father cared for her for a short time and then sent her off to her maternal grandfather. Her father remarried and started a new family, leaving Kate behind. So she's lost her mother and then was abandoned by her father by the age of two. She grew up and married Thomas Edwin Morgan on December 30th, 1885. She became pregnant right away and gave birth to a boy the following October. Tragically, the child only lived for two days. This is the point in our narrative where facts and fiction get blurred. Many accounts claim that Tom Morgan was a no-good gambler who took his wife on the road to swindle people out of money as they pretended to be brother and sister. In these accounts, Kate got pregnant again, 
and decided that this card-sharking life aboard trains was not suitable for a pregnant woman, and she gets off the train without Tom, who decided he was not ready to settle down. This took place in 1892. While it is a fact that the couple did split up in 1892, there are historical records that seem to indicate that Tom stayed in Iowa and lived out the rest of his life there. The fact that trains were heavily policed also makes it improbable that this couple could have done much card sharking. The story continues that Kate arrived at the Hotel del Coronado registered under the false name Lottie Bernard, attempted to abort her own baby, and became very ill. She claimed that she was waiting for her brother, who was a doctor, to show up at the hotel and help her. Most people believe that she was going to rendezvous with a lover as she was estranged from her husband. Witnesses claim that she had been arguing with a gentleman on a train who abandoned her mid-trip. So we have the story where she and her husband are card sharking on the train and he leaves her. And then now we have this other thing where witnesses saw her getting abandoned mid-trip. So I don't know if those two things go together or not. If she was riding with her lover on the train and he left her too, who knows? This man never came and Kate was found dead at the bottom of some stairs leading to the ocean on November 29, 1892 from an apparent self-inflicted gunshot to the head. Although the coroner did say that the bullet didn't match the gun, it was ruled a suicide and the story of Kate Morgan was over. Until the 1980s, when a San Francisco lawyer named Alan May decided to look at the case. May wrote a book in which he claimed that the bullet in Kate's head was not a bullet that matched the gun she had. He surmised that her husband Tom had found her and in a rage killed her. It is believed that the coroner actually misspoke at the inquest and that the bullet did match the gun and that May's theory is preposterous for that very reason. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. But even more mysterious is that there is information that has come to light that leaves doubt that the dead woman was even Kate Morgan. The body, it seems, was never properly identified. Kate's family did not claim the body or identify it, and the dead woman was said to be beautiful. As we said with the intro, she was called a beautiful stranger. A picture that was provided by Kate's employer revealed that Kate was quite plain and certainly not a woman who would be thought to be pretty. She also dressed plainly. The dead woman was found with an expensive shawl around her. Kate also did not have the kind of money to stay at the Hotel del Coronado. So who could this dead woman be? There was an actual Charlotte Lottie Bernard from Detroit who lived during this time according to census reports. She disappears from census reports about the same time that a Lottie Bernard turns up dead at the Hotel del Coronado. Author John Cullen believes the stranger was Lizzie Wiley. This was a young woman who got knocked up by a rich married man. He claims that Kate Morgan befriended Lizzie and that she pushed Lizzie into some kind of blackmail against her lover. Lizzie became distraught, took several types of medicines to cause herself to miscarry, became very ill, and finally committed suicide by shooting herself. Kate then takes off with a man named John Longfield, who had also been a lover to Lizzie. As you can see, these stories just get more convoluted as you go. 
this story about the dead woman is quite confounded and more than likely will never be solved. The identification practices at the time were antiquated. After reviewing much of the evidence and reading the coroner's inquest, we can't honestly say with any certainty that the dead woman was Kate Morgan. There was no autopsy. Not all witnesses were interviewed. The investigation was shoddy at best. Was this just a suicide or could it have been murder? That is difficult to ascertain. But whatever the circumstances, it was not a good death. What we do know is that many people claim that the Hotel del Coronado is haunted by a female ghost. The hotel goes with the claim that the ghost is Kate Morgan. For that reason, we will refer to the ghost as Kate. Renovations have caused the room number to change, but most accounts claim that Kate checked into either room 302 or room 3327. So I think it started off as room 302 and now it's 3327. So if you want to stay in a haunted room, that's the one you want. The room is said to be quite active. Lawyer Alan May himself stayed in that room and claimed he had a visitation from Kate. The lights turn on and off in the room all by themselves. Cold breezes are felt in the room. Curtains move even with the windows closed. And the room has an all-over oppressive feeling. Kate has been seen all around the hotel, though. She died on the exterior staircase leading to the beach. This location has featured sightings of her full-bodied apparition. The hallways have also apparently been walked through on occasion by Kate. Corey Minotti was a guest service manager, and he said that years ago he was watching the sunset when he felt something like drapery being swept across the back of his legs. Later, he found out that he was standing where Kate Morgan's body was found, and it sent chills up his spine. Christine Donovan was the director of heritage programs at the hotel and wrote, Beautiful Stranger, The Ghost of Kate Morgan and the Hotel del Coronado. She was once emailed by a doctor who claimed that during his stay, his shoes and socks, which he always carefully placed by his bed at night, would end up all over the room by the time he woke up. Many people have claimed to have objects thrown about their room in the middle of the night, making people think that Kate isn't the only ghost here. Room 3519, which was formerly room 3502, had once been a maid's room and stories claim she had been the mistress to a hotel owner. She committed suicide in the room after finding out she was pregnant. Objects in this room move around on their own and there is other haunting activity. The gift shop is nearly as active as Kate's former room. Items are removed from the shelves but always found upright and unbroken on the floor. Sometimes those items literally fly off the shelves. An employee who works in the shop claims that she once saw a woman wearing a black dress with a high collar behind the counter one morning before opening. She was just trying to help out sure was. She hurried past because the figure scared her. Later, she asked the manager if another employee had been in this particular shop early that morning. The manager said she had been the first into the shop, but that she had noticed that the books on the counter had been in a disarray, as if someone had been leafing through them and she knew she had straightened them the night before. Kate just wants to see what everybody's writing about her. <laughs> Most I heard, likely. I heard a story that a woman had her back to where the books were kept on a shelf and that that beautiful stranger book kept falling off behind her, and she'd put it back up, and then it would pop down again. And so she looked over at the cashier and was like, I guess I'm supposed to buy this book. <laughs> How funny. The fifth floor has a haunted room that has been investigated several times by paranormal investigating groups. They have captured chairs moving, water faucets turning on by themselves, and objects moving. The hotel started allowing people on the hotel's haunted tour to enter the room in 2022. 
Halloween is a special time at the hotel with bonfires on the beach, ghost stories read in the lobby, pumpkin carving, and ghost tours. Sounds like our kind of place. Yeah, I'm like, if we're going (laughs) to visit, we need to do it around Halloween. And one of the fun facts about this hotel is one of my favorite Marilyn Monroe movies is Some Like It Hot. And it was filmed here at the Hotel Del Coronado. Across the bay from the hotel is Old Point Loma Lighthouse. It's not a very big lighthouse, but for 36 years, it kept watch at the entrance to San Diego Bay. The location for the lighthouse was chosen because it was 422 feet above sea level. So it's pretty high up there. California had only been an official state for 19 days when Congress appropriated funds to build lighthouses on the West Coast. The job of building the lighthouse on Point Loma was given to Gibbon and Kelly out of Washington, D.C. They had to come quite a ways to build that lighthouse. Construction began in 1851. Sandstone was carved from the hillside for the walls of the lighthouse, and salvaged floor tiles from the ruins of an old Spanish fort were used as flooring. The roof was fashioned from rolled tin, the tower was made from brick, and the housing for the light was from iron and brass. This would be one of those lighthouses that was basically a house with a small tower in the middle for the light. We've talked about a couple of these on the podcast. They're pretty rare. Usually we're used to these big towers being lighthouses, but there are a few that are like this. The lantern and lens came from Paris in 1855 and was lit for the first time on November 15, 1855. A small wooden structure was built next to it for storage, but was converted to an assistant keeper's house in 1875. Today, that house serves as a museum, and the lighthouse was refurbished by the National Park Service. The lighthouse is referred to as the Old Point Loma Lighthouse because a newer one was built at a location closer to the water at the tip of the point at a lower elevation. This was necessary as it was found that fog and low clouds often obscured the light and keepers sometimes had to rely on shotgun blasts to warn ships. Can you imagine? You're like, they can't see us, so maybe we better shoot a couple of shotgun shells off so at least they're like, there's got to be something nearby. We better steer. (laughs) Or duck. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) One or the other. Don't hit us. And they shoot the captain. The keeper extinguished the lamp for the last time on March 23rd, 1891. Some family memories were shared by David and Jeanne Israel, who had a great-grandfather that was a lighthouse keeper at Old Point Loma. Their grandfather grew up at the lighthouse. They wrote, Life on the isolated point was, at times, an adventure. My mother remembers as a child complaining to my grandfather about having to walk to school and him telling her, How would you like to have to row a boat across the bay to school? (laughs) Point taken. Forget about, I had to walk uphill both ways in snow up to my waist. That's how he and his two brothers got to school in Old Town, San Diego from the lighthouse. The Israel family lived there for 18 years, and the great-grandfather was the one to extinguish the light for the last time. In 1984, the light was relit again by the National Park Service for the first time in 93 years in celebration of the site's 130th birthday. Approximately 3,000 people and over 100 descendants of the Israels attended. Very cool. That's cool. Let's have a family reunion and we'll open up the lighthouse. People who have visited the lighthouse claim that it is haunted. There are stories of loud disembodied footsteps coming from the second floor. The bedrooms feature low moaning that some describe as sounding demonic. One visitor was climbing the stairs up to the light when they heard that weird moaning and it got louder with each step. At the top of the stairs, there was a bone-chillingly cold spot. Then a dark shadowy figure appeared, flew past the visitor, and disappeared down the stairs. No one knows for sure who the spirit might be, but some people think it is Robert Decatur Israel, 
the last keeper. I would have to say whoever it was, it's a prankster because they were waiting for each step to be made <laughs> exactly. and then moaning. It's like, ooh, creak, ooh, creak, ooh. <laughs> that was a high-pitched moan. That wasn't low. <laughs> that totally would be me, though. <laughs> the Point Loma Rosecrans National Cemetery is only a mile away from the lighthouse, so perhaps a spirit or two visits from there. So who was the dead woman on the stairs at the Hotel del Coronado? Has she been misidentified, and this is why she haunts the hotel? Does the spirit remain because of the tragic death? Is the Hotel del Coronado haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, definitely a place to check out, especially at Halloween. And we'd love to have you check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And if you'd like to send us some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We did get an email from Lucy. Hi, Diane and Kelly. My name is Lucy, and I've been listening to your podcast since 2015 when I was six years old. Awesome. I did send you a letter around that time, and I remember being crowned one of your youngest listeners. Can you imagine? And she's still listening. Must be doing something right. It's awesome. I am 14 now, and I have still been a nonstop listener since then. Two years ago, my great-grandmother pulled out a huge diagram she had compiled over the years of my family tree in history. On it was my great-great-great-great-something grandmother, Mary Perkins Bradbury, a tried-and-let-go Salem witch. She was in her 70s when she was accused of being a shapeshifter, turning into animals like a blue boar and running after children to trap and eat them. Oh, my. She was also believed to have thrown cutlery and utensils at her neighbors with her mind. And after enough accusations, she was found guilty. They just didn't see her winging them with her arm. I was going to say, they probably deserved it. (laughs) (laughs) But for a reason unknown, she was let go and dropped of any charges. I have family in Salem, so my whole life I've had a connection with the town. My great-grandmother, or my Gigi, I mentioned lived there, as well as my uncle and his family. My Gigi was the one who really got me into hauntings, history, and such. Good woman. Indeed. She unfortunately passed away this year, and we all went to her home for her funeral. That night, me and my cousin walked to the Salem Witch Memorial, since it was in walking distance to my uncle's house. While we were there, my cousin and I were reading a plaque, and then abruptly, two butterflies started circling around the memorial, dancing and flying around, and eventually landing right in between me and my cousin's hands that had settled on the plaque. I don't know if that was my Gigi, but it sure did bring me some comfort and some closure. Your podcast has been with me my whole life, and I thank you for feeding the spooky spark in me. That was beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. And we don't mean to joke about the Salem witch trials. We just say a lot of tongue in cheek things. Um, It's pretty neat to have a direct family descendant connected to that. And I'm so glad she was released. Oh, absolutely. Instead of what most of them got, which was hanged. And we have discussed this many times on the podcast. Butterflies do seem to be an indication that you do have a lost loved one hanging around. I don't know what it is about butterflies and spirits that they're able to communicate in that way, but I have no doubt that her Gigi was flitting around and letting her know, I'm here and I'm okay. Yep. And it's really cool to think that we've been with somebody almost their entire life. (laughs) Definitely. And I had her send me her address so we could send her out some stickers. And And another little synchronicity is you received that email from her right after we recorded the 500th yeah, episode where we started to sing Lucy in the sky with diamonds. Yeah, about the <laughs> Lucifer telescope. They changed the name to Lucy. So I was like, oh, look at that. We get an email from Lucy. Because the minute I saw that it was from a Lucy, I went, look, Lucy in the sky with diamonds <laughs> is in my email box. 
And then Ellen and the crew wrote, Hi group, I've been meaning to post about the episode on Versailles. I had a small experience there. I had a Facebook memory today that my husband and I were there one year ago, so here it is. My experience happened in the garden in one of those corridors to different areas of the garden. I was walking through one following the tour. For a very split second, I walked into a memory or something. I felt myself being very lightly kissed. I also felt myself blush and smiled shyly. It was as if I walked into an emotional energy of a young man stealing a kiss from the girl that he likes, two people falling in love. No one was there, but I was the girl for that split second. How bizarre. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things they talk about is a time slip, something weird. Interesting. So I don't know. She had an outlander experience for like five (laughs) seconds. (laughs) Boom. She went through that little water whatever thing you described being in a tunnel. Yeah, not the stones. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for sharing that, Ellen. I want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to thank Jennifer Billingham for raising your contribution. We're going to be moving you into a garden crypt. And in three months, you'll be receiving your HGB logo mug. Thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump. And you know what's really cool, Kelly? We just sent some stickers and magnets out to Lucy for writing us that letter because we thought it was so cool. Anybody can get a sticker from HGB by just signing up at the dollar level at Patreon. And if you want the magnet, if you sign up at the $5 level, we send you a sticker and a magnet. Yes, indeed. Want to keep the spooks away? Give us a review. The dining wing should. The dining wing. The dining wing. wing, wing. The <laughs> wing, wing, wing. The Dell is too close to major, major. <laughs> major, major basis. <laughs> Say that five times fast. <laughs> major, 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 major. I did it. Whoopee. I can't believe I did I'm it. I'm so proud of you, baby. <laughs> that this couple could have done much shark carting. Shark carting? <laughs> is that like when the shark is the bouncer at the bar and he goes, can I see your ID? You're not that far away from me right now. I'm going <laughs> to whack you with the microphone. Shark. Or is that just you're carting the sharks down in the ocean? Are you are you of age to be chomping people? Can I see some <laughs> ID, Mr. Shark? Hey, Jaws, do you got some ID? Also makes dun-na, it. Dun-na, dun-na. I'm going to beat you. <laughs> I'm going to beat you so hard. You ain't going to be able to sit down for a week, little messy. (laughs) This was a young woman who got knocked up by a rich married man. Just put that real bluntly. She got knocked up. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going for different ways of saying impregnated. (laughs) Impregnated. He claims that Kate Morgan befriended. He claims that Kate. Befriended. Befriended. (laughs) Befriended. Befriended.
some family memories. Some family memories. 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 <laughs> Caught between the pages of my, my mind. mind. <laughs> you know we're going to start making this a singing show eventually. Oh, Lord. Haunted karaoke. Heaven forbid. <laughs> <laughs>